This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I have a rather unusual collection of short stories from Alan Jones entitled Big Weird Lonely Hearts. So, Alan, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you so much. It's great to be back for another year. And absurd. How would you describe your writing style? Because all of these stories are eccentric, if not absurd. Yeah, I think I I try to take characters who are sort of desperately in love in some way. Either they want love, they want to hold on to love, or they want to escape love, or they love themselves too much. But the situations you uh, provide uh, for us, there's anthropomorphism, there's all sorts of unusual (laughs) happening. Look, let's take a start with one of these stories. Let's look at 62.85 degrees north and 9.08 degrees east. That's a title of a short story. Is, is that an actual location? It is. It's a rather impossible title. I've never said it out loud. I don't think it's actually a mountain where I was in a cabin uh, where I broke up with a girlfriend. Uh, well, there you go. So here we go, though, because now I think I'm terribly unqualified to talk about uh, what now takes place because, basically, here's the line. A woman finds a clitoris on the back of her knee. So talking about absurd, we have an absurd situation occurring. But really, there's uh, a bloke and a girl, a relationship, but it's almost like the imagination of the writer is being uh, appearing... And taking place on the woman. How would you describe it? Yeah, in some ways it's a story about... It's almost inevitable, I think, as writers that we use our lives to write. And this is a story that, while humorous, sort of looks at how invasive that can be to your loved ones. So if you're writing something and, and, and parts of your life sneak in, it's actually real. And you may be mixing and matching those, but that is a sort of... I don't want to call it violence, but it is a sort of invasion uh, and so this, this, this girlfriend starts actually physically experiencing the stories that her boyfriend's writing, and she wants out. She wants out desperately. But it, it then is there's a bigger picture to this as well, because really it's an engagement between the writer and the audience, because can a writer come up with uh, absurd situations and uh, have an audience go along? I mean, come on. Clitoris on the back of the knee. How absurd is that? How tolerant are readers of these sorts of things? Yeah, I think, I mean, typically we tell students of writing to set up the rules of a story early. And so if you set up your rule, and a lot of these stories, the first lines hit you rather hard. Like there's one where the first line is that someone has a computer for a face. Um, And so if you typically, if you set up those rules very early where somebody's writing can move around someone else's genitalia, then the reader goes, oh, this is that kind of story. And then from there, my goal with the story is to still surprise them. In a world like that, can you still surprise them? And that's why there's that radical turn. But talking about genitalia, it's a risky focus in some ways to to touch upon yeah yeah i think so i mean the the truth is i I had this bump on the back of my knee and it felt rather funny and i thought to myself who knows what this is we don't know what it is maybe it will grow maybe it will change and so that was basically the the impetus for this was to think to myself what if what if this happened what would that mean about what would that mean about sex that would change sex very much what would that mean about the relationship between you and the person you loved if they controlled your body and so really in a lot of ways these stories work as metaphors or allegories for Uh, what goes on in relationships, where someone has more power than the other person, how that affects the relationship. Uh, It goes from there. 
the one that touched me, close your eyes and listen. Now, it's full of sound. In the notes at the back of the book, you've, you talked about echolocation. But really, you've basically created a landscape of sound. But behind it all, there's this suggestion of a child and you get the, the thrumming of uh, fingers on a table at the beginning, at the end. But does she know we're coming? There's, a, there's an event we never really get to know, but is heightened in some ways and because of the soundscape around the child. Yeah, yeah. I love coming up with different ways of writing a story. And in the end, you need to have a story. But this one was born out of studying sound uh, as, as my, in my work as a professor and thinking to myself, can I design a story around an expansion and contraction of sound in terms of space in the story? And then, of course, I needed a story. So there is an actual story about a brother and a sister and a child. Um, and what I like to do in a lot of these stories is that the story haunts what you get. So the text we get there is full of space, full of sound, and it's full of one man and a, and a child in a room. Not much happens. And the real story behind that is sort of it haunts it. Uh, yeah, and, and that's powerful storytelling in many ways, but heightened by the sounds of the situation uh, the child is in or the landscape. Yeah, and in some ways, I was reading about there's these rooms called anechoic chambers where there's no sound at all. And tech, I guess apparently if you go in one of these, you lose, you get, you get sick to your stomach, you lose a sense of where you are, you get dizzy. And so in some ways, I'm trying to affect that on the reader. At the very end of the story, all the sounds we've gotten are finally erased. And it's really, it's a symbol of his, his loneliness. He's losing a child. Yeah, but the thrumming of the fingers. Except the thrumming and of the, the fingers. And the child. Yeah. Is, there's something going on in the child's yeah. mind, but that's only evident. And there's a risk that, is she impatient to leave? That's his worry. Yeah. And his hope is that she still loves him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A Mexican legend. Cat sat on a sun-drenched post and has got a hangover. I mean, this, this anthropomorphism, the way we look at creatures, the way they look at us. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a story. This is sort of my, my action movie, uh, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with animals. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to, because it's so silly, and it starts, if you read, I, we don't need to read the first paragraph, but if you read the first paragraph, it's the highest diction, the most poetic, because the content's so low, I can raise the diction and writing really high, and the reader will buy that. But also then seeing an animal or thinking of an animal with a hangover and, and all of these sorts of things. But again... How interchangeable are they with people? No line was more indelible than that dividing dogs and cats. Well, men and women sort of thing. It's There is a juxtaposition here as yeah. well. Yeah, in this, in this story, it's, they're, they're clearly not dogs and cats because he plays the stock market. He, but then at the same time, they are dogs and cats. And so I get to play with the rules of dogs and cats and make sort of social commentary on us because we think that we are all the same species. We are. Um, but we can, I can sort of use these divisions to sort of highlight what would it mean to love someone who's truly different than you, which in fact, we all do if we love somebody. The, the line that got me, just because of my background as a teacher, finally out of desperation, they talked of their childhoods. Dog explained her terror at school, all that yelling, sit, sit, and cat happily <laughs> admitting to no formal education. But, you know, the trauma we inflict on children, we're aware of that. 
Are we as aware of the trauma we inflict on our pets? Yeah, and it's it's funny. In there is one uh, there is one story that does actually kind of seriously talk about uh, species extinction, the last tiger in the world. Even though the story is about a girl and her mother, uh, in this story it's it's much more focused on humans uh, yeah. than the actual message about animals. Now you mentioned. Um it's easier than you think to have a computer for a face, dreaming of trains. Could you just read for us that little passage we picked out before to get a sense of... Yeah, sure. Here we go. Yeah, and this is, this is a very short piece. I mean, in this book, I have a couple of sort of short, uh, kind of enigmatic tonal pieces um, that, that give you a, a piece of something and then let you think about it, as opposed to giving you maybe what would be considered a full story. But here's, this is a, this is a boy who uh, has had an accident and so has had his face replaced with a screen. The other character in the story is a girl who's, who's been burned very badly and is disfigured. And there's just a, sort of this comparison going back and forth from his perspective. And what about, what about what it means to be different and how technology figures into that. And in some ways, how we're all becoming sort of technologically bound. Anyway, so he's in class, he's in high school, and people use, uh, girls use his camera to take selfies. And they ask him, where does the picture go? They always ask, into your brain. I explain the central processor they relay to my neural system, but they're never listening. They lean into me, put their arms on my thigh, kiss my screen. I capture their lip prints. Can you animate it, they ask. I make it fly around, turn it into a screensaver. It never goes anywhere, at least not a place I can feel. Their lips are just data. I won't ever feel lips on my face again. But in some ways, that speaks to me of how not just insensitive people are, but how they interpret events or act you know a kiss really the 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 reason the girls are kissing it is is completely um selfish um and such like are you actually making a comment about relationships and people's agendas i mean i i was sort of thinking about how digital i'm about to have a, a kid my first child and nowadays, everyone's on their phones all the time, and people are raised on their phone. And I thought about all the things you do to communicate with people you like, for whatever reason, as a friend or a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, uh, when you're young that are physical, and how, would that, how that might take place digitally and how maybe it can't take place. And so he's the future. He's technological, and he's jealous of this person who actually, in some ways, is, is, is disfigured because they're still human. And they've still got... Uh, the potential for intimate contact, even though they're disfigured. So you're saying something about uh, deformity there. But the fatuous nature of some of the uh, relationships that and, and the reasons uh, for going into them, you know, that, that their agenda was the screen, not the person. Right, 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 right. Yeah, uh, he's, he's different and he's special, but he has no real contact. Yeah. So the absurd, in some ways, allows us to investigate some rather potent issues in this regard yeah i do feel like it's in some ways there's a like sort of a comedic revolution going on i think in comedy where comedians especially in the u.s are able to talk about things and, and sometimes they fail but are able to talk about things that are on the border of, of, of provocative not allowed so i've tried to do that with here where you have humor opens up the reader to then hit them with something that's actually a question of what does it mean to be human what does it mean to yeah. be connected bar fighter you've got somebody that goes into bars and picks fights <laughs> Well, this is, I shouldn't say this, but I basically met a guy like this who was very cheery, very friendly, and he really, really liked to fight people in bars. And it was the strangest thing I'd ever, I'd ever experienced. And I was trying to figure out who he was and what that meant. And of course, I pushed it a little bit in this story um, to try to think, think to myself, 
really what he wanted was connection. He would walk around the bar making eyes at people and trying to get them to interact with him. But then you've juxtaposed it with a homosexual man, Lucas, who befriends him and is tender. And so you've, you've, you've got this violence and tenderness. Yeah, and I sort of wanted to, to turn some perspectives on their head. If you had a, a sort of a, you know, your hyper-toxic, violent male, but who in fact is looking for love and then meet somebody who will give him a kind of love which, isn't ex- which he doesn't understand at all. Yeah. Is it acceptable or accepted and, and such like? Um, and again, breaking the stereotypes of how uh, people behave. But you have a little ending on that about writing as well, because Lucas writes the story and cures him sort of thing, even though he doesn't manage um, to find a resolution for himself. At, at 64 or 65, he's on his walking stick still. Yeah, still, he's still in the bar. Yeah, there's, there's no real resolution for him. He's still, he's still out there trying. Yeah. While we have uh, the time, one last story, See the Machine. And it sort of left me a little in despair after I read this. You've got a dog, you've got television, and people sort of behaving almost like a dog does to cues, and the cues are coming out of the television. Yeah, this is probably the most experimental. I mean, people call this book experimental, but it's really storytelling. Most of these stories are pretty straight-ahead storytelling. That's the one piece where I really let myself... I'm a poet also, and I let myself sort of play with metaphors to an extent that uh, that's more significant than the other ones. And it is a little bit heavy. I think I think it is a little bit heavier than some of the other pieces, uh, although it is about, a, about you know, basically Lassie. When I was a kid, Lassie was a dog that saved people on TV and was perfect. And yet... Um you know, the television is perfect, giving us cues of how to behave. I am going to have to wind it up. No, Lisa's no, got no a... I'm saying actually keep going. We've actually got two more minutes. We've got oh, two right. more minutes. Yeah, we We've got a clock on the wall and a clock on the computer, and often they don't uh, <laughs> interconnect, or, so it's it's quite interesting. But basically, how much do we lead our lives from these social instruments like television telling us what the expectations are? I mean, that story touches on racism as well um yeah and there is and this book is not sort of bang you on the head give you messages but i felt like each story does touch on serious uh sort of social issues uh and tries to open up the reader to an argument that's not too simple but also then the absurd allows us to engage by taking away the expectation the assumptions that we make as readers so that's going through this as well i think yeah 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 yeah. Anyway, we will uh, <laughs> round Sounds it Sounds fascinating. The, the collection is Big Weird Lonely Hearts. The uh, author is Alan C. Jones. What's the C for, Alan? Clarence. Clarence. Yeah, my name is so boring I have to include the C. <laughs> um, and it's a Midnight Sun publishing. So, Alan, thanks once again for coming in yeah, and talking to us. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. So right now I've got um, a pre-record that I did with Tim Loveday. Tim Loveday is a writer and poet. His work has appeared in many publications, including Mianjin, Overland, The Griffith Review, The Suburban Review, Cordite, Mascara, The Big Issue and many more. His work has been shortlisted for numerous awards, including the 2022 Lord Mayor's Creative Writing Award, and he was awarded highly commended in the Southern Cross Short Story Prize. Welcome, Tim. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So we actually went to uni together in, uh, at RMIT, studying professional writing and coming in to have a chat. Your work focuses on toxic masculinity, 
intergenerational violence in rural Australia. What has been your inspiration for your work? Uh, it's a big question. <laughs> I think quite frankly, my own childhood, growing up around the man I grew up around, um, seeing unfortunately what my father was like, which is a big focus of a lot of my earlier work, although I'm in the sort of period of transitioning out of the focus of sad dad poms as I would describe them. Um, but definitely the sort of insularity of masculine community in the rural community that I grew up in um, and understanding how that behaviour was perpetuated by codes of, of violence, I suppose. Mm. So David Sedaris, the, the comedy non-fiction writer, talks a lot about his relationship with his father in his work. Mm. He said that he got to a point where everything outrageous and incendiary, his father said, was another paycheck. <laughs> do, <laughs> do you relate to this? Oh, God. <laughs> it's close to the bone, that's for sure. And I mean, David Sedaris has uh, such a profound ability to, to, you know, call a spade a spade, I suppose. Um, but yeah, certainly. It is an industry of itself which encourages particular sorts of narratives, sometimes deep dives into one's own psychology and personal history that can feel densely uncomfortable. And the nature of it is sort of a, a snowball effect, I guess, where you produce the work that you assume is expected of you to some extent, although I don't think I could have really written anything else. Mm -hmm. But I would, I would definitely say that the work of anger and resentment and frustration and sadness was certainly the one that uh, for a while appealed yeah. to people the most. So I can definitely sort of resonate with every every angry thing I wrote about my dad was a was a paycheck, although no one's paying me that much, unfortunately. <laughs> not, not nearly as much <laughs> as David Sedaris, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's in another little world of his own there, David Sedaris. Oh, 100%. He? I saw him. Um, so did I. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was... It was um, it was actually amazing. Did you do you remember the performance poet he got up? I just yes, I couldn't yeah. even conceive of a world where you just meet a performance poet at a reading you're doing, and then just decide you're going to cart that guy around the world with you. It is yeah, amazing. I mean, it was it was an okay performance poet. I've seen a lot of performance poetry. It's an okay performance poet, but I just thought it was so endearing that David Sedaris had met some guy in Glasgow. I think yeah, that's right, and just decided that he was going to bring him halfway across the world to Australia <laughs> to you well, know do some performance poets before he sat. Yeah, it, it was cute uh, and endearing, absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, I love David Sedaris. He's hilarious. But anyway, I was going to ask you about your work. So what mm. what is poetry? That's a good question. I think the, the poets have been debating that for eons, which, you know, undercuts their credibility yeah. to an extent. If you can't name the thing, it's impossible to justify your existence. But I suppose poetry, to some extent, is trying to capture the unspeakable. Oh, trying, nice. trying to name absence. Um, that's why poetry deals so often with space. I think I've been reading a lot of dense literary theory the yeah. last couple of months, so maybe I can speak to this more specifically. But mm. um, I, I certainly think poetry has a has the capacity to uh, do a lot more and a lot quicker uh, than than prose, and that's that's sort of where its power exists. Oh wow! Okay, so it's like a a shorthand to something. Yes, a shorthand or. Sometimes they're just misting over an idea and you don't know what you've just read. But I often, I, I wrote in a Mianjin piece uh, six months ago, something like that, that uh, poetry was a small window into another world. And that's how I treat a stanza. That's how I treat each line. It's just sort of an entry point into into something else. It doesn't 
necessarily have to justify its own existence. It doesn't necessarily have to make sense. It's just looking into another world, and that is sort of beautiful and endearing because the poetry world, in, especially in Australia, but even more broadly, is quite small. Everyone knows each other. Mm. So, Do you mind just reading these two uh, paragraphs, please? Yeah, of course. Dad, did you ever plant a time capsule with a note inside saying, you talking to me? Dad, did you ever smell tin and copper and leather and polymer and diesel and think, I'm happy? Did you ever lug a trunk over your shoulder and not buckle under its enormity? How many times can you kiss a TV before you realise the hum in its lips is static? Dad, how long after a shadow is subsumed can you fear it? Do you still hear his car pulling up in the front yard? Have you ever wondered if your whole life is after dark? When the words rush out your throat, are you still the boy hiding in your friend's backyard? How many times have you come out from under that house? How many times have you shown love that is fearless? How many times did you want to and not know how? How many times have you dreamt? that this could all be different. Thank you. Cheers. So powerful. Um, let's speak about what you're working on currently. Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, so I think my focus after writing a lot of long-form prose poetry and poetry is I've shifted to fiction. Um, okay. Sort of in the same realm. I'm more broadly interested in communities reckoning with climate change and how uh, climate change not only impacts communities but impacts uh, sort of the foundations of gender relations um, and destabilises them essentially. And I think what you tend to see in sort of the sociological data is that uh, the worst aspects of men and also the best aspects of men are super heightened in these extreme circumstances and moments of crisis. And you see that more broadly across the board, but specifically in the case of sort of climate change and climate disaster modes. Mm. Um, and that's sort of all off the back of, you know, living through Black Summer 2019. Um, and I saw it sort of reverberate through my family. I sort of have heard hundreds of stories from people in community. And, and uh, um, so I've sort of shifted the lens now towards that more specifically and in terms of fiction I'm, I'm i've been writing a lot of fiction a lot of um quite a lot of short stories uh and i got an arts council grant from australian arts council in december last year to finish off a novel that i've been working on for uh, about two years now so that's pretty close to coming okay to yeah. so what is the novel called that's a good question. Oh, uh, so it's, it's, that's it's, yet to be determined? I it? mean, it's shifted names a few different times, okay. I have to be honest with you. The working title at the moment is To Call the Dogs, which refers to, a, uh, a, I guess, a linguistic theory that um, language was developed off the back of human beings com communicating with animals and specifically dogs, so uh, oh. domesticating dogs. Um, I'm not sure, I don't want to debate anyone who has way more knowledge in this space <laughs> than I do about this sort of prevalence or, or, or whether it's a um, popular theory at the moment. Um, but it certainly has a grounding in terms of the work I'm speaking about because I think one of the core things that I'm interested in is how land relationalities and between men and, and, and land and animals 
um, is sort of drastically shifted in climactic events. Um, and I guess what we can learn from each other in those circumstances. Wow, that sounds really timely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how, does the, how does this, is it all related, do you think, the climate? You, you mentioned the patriarchy. You mentioned, you know, climate, climate change, um, our, our, you know, capitalist world. Do you think these things are all sort of one and the same? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think discursively people tend to center whatever work they're working on anyway. So I'm hesitant to do that. I understand that there's so much other stuff going on. There's a relationship between patriarchy, coloniality, you know, um, capitalism, and 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 they're certainly intertwined in some sense. But I don't want to I don't want to center my narrative in any way, shape, or form. But I do, I do see uh, a relationship between them, especially when you start to look at the fact that you know these, you know, work that deals with masculinity, men and disaster sociologically struggles to find its feet to some extent because the conversation is so broad. You're looking at everything from, you know, the CEOs on the BHP board is, you know, predominantly occupied by men. Men are decision-making. Their structures are densely patriarchal, densely capitalistic um, to, you know old Greg who's just lost his house and his property and is now alone and having to sort of fend off the banks and, 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 and deal with the sort of um, end of the world as he knows it mm. um, and everything in between. So the conversation is huge, I think. Yeah, the con- conversation is enormous and we are all at the brunt of it, even the CEOs potentially, even old Greg, <laughs> you know, we all suffer from it. Yeah. it. There's no, I mean, there are, there are some winners, let's be honest about it. You know, there, there are some, some, um, some people who are taking everything and running, but, um, majoritively speaking, we're, we're all losing. Yeah. With it. Uh, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Obviously there are some, some big winners in in this to a certain extent. But I think also it's important to remember that there are people who are at the absolute forefront of this situation. It's very easy for us to sort of compartmentalise climate change because it's not on our doorstep. And Australia's first real intense experience of that, I think, was, you know, Black Summer hmm. and a, a sudden realisation that it was it was now on our doorstep and we had people who were fundamentally displaced from their communities because they lost everything and they couldn't return home because fires weren't just going through their properties once, they were going through that twice, even three times. Yeah, it devastating for people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a good subject matter for a, a, a novel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, and, and bringing those those really heartfelt and difficult um, experiences to, to everyone's forefront of everyone's mind, I guess, and that's a, a, a great thing to do. Yeah. Before we finish up today, is there anything that we can come and see you doing? I know you do performance poetry, so could you tell me a little bit about if you're performing in something coming up? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, doing a feature next Tuesday at Pride of Our Footscray uh, for an event called Poetry Spective. Um, it starts at 7.30, I believe, goes to about 10.30. I'll be the main feature, so... You'll probably have to listen to me spiel off a number of poems for about a half an hour or more. Awesome. Um, but it's usually a pretty amazing night and it's, it gets packed out and the host, uh, Lish, is, is phenomenal. So come along. It would be great to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tim Lofty. Thanks for being my guest. Thanks so much for having me.